Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. Well, good morning, everyone. And uh, thank you so much for your very warm welcome. Thank you, Keith, for uh, chairing this morning. And perhaps on behalf of us all, I could express our thanks to the team, uh, the committee, and many others who have done such a good job to make sure this event is taking place. Um, I've had nearly 18 months of cancelled, or at least not cancelled, but Zoomed conferences. And uh, this is the first one, actually, apart from Keswick a few weeks ago, which was actually live. And so it's lovely uh, that you can continue with this, that we can be together, and we want to express our thanks to the team that's managed this event so well, and all of us, indeed, for uh, adjusting uh, to these unusual times. Thank you again for uh, the welcome. And uh, as you know, this week we are thinking of that theme, The Lord Reigns. And uh, you'll see on the screen that uh, I've selected this title, Trusting God in turbulent times, looking at a little story of Habakkuk, because he definitely affirms this truth that the Lord is in control, the Lord reigns, but the way he gets there is also to confront many of the challenges of his world, which we've already seen, as Keith read to us in chapter one. So I think it's a very realistic, a very honest, and yet also a very confident expression of trust in God, despite the turmoil all around. Um, we're going to uh, look at the five sessions, and in the handbook, actually, I some weeks ago submitted some titles, but I've decided just to revert to a very simple way of describing uh, this prophecy, the five words uh, that I've used previously, and I hope you won't mind if we revert to that. Um, I'll put them up on screen, actually. Here they are. So today, we're looking at why from Habakkuk chapter 1. Tomorrow, if you can be with us, we're looking at uh, the first five verses of chapter 2, something of a turning point in Habakkuk with the word wait. Then we go into the rest of chapter 2. You may know this chapter. It's full of woes. There's some really good news in the middle of it, let me tell you, so please come on Wednesday. But woe is a repeated refrain. And then on uh, uh, Thursday, we come to the beginning of chapter 3 with a fantastic vision uh, that God gave Habakkuk of the Lord's action, past, present, and future, as he saves, as he intervenes. So we are calling that watch. And then finally, on Friday morning, we come to worship, which is the little doxology, which I guess most of us will know, the lovely phrases at the end of this uh, journey of Habakkuk. Uh, as we look at his worshipping the Lord. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Well, of course, as I've mentioned, we are uh, living in a very turbulent world. I needn't really rehearse the issues, but most of us, I think, will agree that we're living at a time where there is a great deal of uncertainty all around the world. I read a remark by a US senator who was an elderly man retiring, and he said, I think this is the most dangerous time to be alive, as he looked around the world. And I suppose many of us recognize that to be true. There are, for example, the challenges of the pandemic. We're still in that. We don't know where it's heading. Uh, we have the statistics, of course, that something in the region of 4.4 million people have died already because of COVID, maybe 10,000 deaths a day. 
and that's just the formally recorded information. There's the instability which we are now witnessing in Central and South Asia, or in the Middle East, or uh, terrorism. Every day now we're reminded, of course, of the threats associated with global climate change. All of these things have added to this mood of uncertainty, of fear, anxiety. In fact, I have a book at home which was written shortly before the pandemic, and uh, it's entitled The Age of Anxiety. And uh, in it, the authors begin with uh, some black humor. And they say, if you're anxious about what's happening in the world today, then you need to see a psychiatrist. If you're not anxious about what's happening in the world, you definitely need to see a psychiatrist. And of course, added to that, there are all kinds of challenges to us as the Christian community. We've encountered pressures of all kinds, and if you were here over the weekend, you would have heard um, Michael Nazarelli and others talk about the growing pressure on the Christian community. Uh, we're told that something like 90% of all religious persecution today is directed at Christians, the Christian community, uh, many of whom, of course, are in Islamic states. Uh, something like 200 million evangelicals are suffering from direct and hostile persecution in 35 or more countries around the world. And the Pew Research Center tells us that harassment against Christians, that's a rather more low-level persecution, is impacting people in nearly 130 countries. That's a high percentage of the world, including here in the West. Of course, we add to that the challenge of what's happening in our own personal world. Now, what we're looking at this morning, and indeed this week, might well raise questions in our lives when it seems our world is out of control. Things happen to us, or to our families, or to those close to us, and they seem to be events which contradict our affirmation that the Lord is in control, that the Lord reigns. I remember some years ago visiting an elder in the small church where I was brought up in London. And uh, we had tea together, and as we spoke, he had just come from a very demanding pastoral visit. He had to visit a young couple whose four-year-old daughter had died in very tragic circumstances. Um, he had been a Christian for about 50 years, and yet he said it, it introduced him again to this mood of, of doubt, of uncertainty. Why should God allow this to happen? Uh, he wasn't bitter, it was just the bewilderment of that kind of tragedy. And I suppose many of us, if not all of us here, or if you're listening online, recognize this reality in our lives. Many things appear to contradict a bland confidence in the God who rules. And I suppose we could say that the only type of faith which is immune from that question when you're facing troubled circumstances is a blind faith. Um, sometimes it betrays a misunderstanding of what faith means. It's more like the uh, schoolboy definition you've probably heard. Faith is believing in things you know ain't true. Um, I remember a preacher, a friend of mine, saying that he treated Christians who said they never had any questions or doubts in the same way as he treated husbands who said they never argued with their wives. With extreme skepticism, he said, either they possess an extraordinary degree of luck or an abysmal lack of imagination. Well, we know from our reading of Scripture and in our own Christian lives 
that there is this point of tension which I mentioned last night. It's a tension between what we believe as God's people, what we've been singing about and affirming, and what is happening in the world where we live. This certainly was the tension that Habakkuk experienced and it's expressed here in chapter one. After all, God had made so many promises. He'd made promises to his people. He'd made good promises that through them all the nations of the earth would be blessed and yet it didn't seem to be coming true. So this first chapter is a very simple structure. It's just a dialogue between Habakkuk and the Lord. Perhaps your Bible version even uh, gives you those headings, uh, Habakkuk's complaint, uh, the Lord's answer, and then Habakkuk's second complaint. So we'll just walk through those three things very simply in these next few minutes. First of all, we begin with Habakkuk's problem in verses 1 to 4. And I'd like to introduce it under two simple headings. First of all, carrying a burden. Because this is the literal translation of the opening word of the prophecy, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet received. It's the burden which he received. Um, here was a man with a heavy load on his heart and mind. And verse 1 says that like all true prophets, he received this from the Lord. But you can see as you read the message that uh, it was really related to his own burdened heart. He's burdened by what is happening in his own society there in Jerusalem. He's burdened by the appalling deterioration that was taking place amongst God's people. You can see his questions in verses 3 and 4. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. So if we are asking who's in control of our world, that definitely was the question Habakkuk was asking. He was overwhelmed by this, this challenge. He believed that the Lord reigns, and yet as he looked out amongst his people and across the nations, it didn't appear to be true. As you probably know, he was living in Jerusalem around the seventh century BC. It was after King Josiah. Uh, king Josiah was the great king, uh, the outstanding king of Judah, and he had begun a work of reformation. He had discovered the law of Moses, and so he tore down the pagan altars, uh, he restored the temple, but unfortunately those reforms didn't last. And he was followed by another king, Jehoiakim, who quickly succeeded in reversing all of those good reforms. And you can see what uh, he, he mentions in this first chapter. It's a picture of moral and spiritual decline. There was uh, around him this uh, drift into godlessness amongst God's own people. And you can see the language of his, his cry to God uh, in verses three and four. It was a completely undisciplined, a lawless society. He says the law is paralyzed there in verse four. In other words, it was frozen. God's word was ineffective. Well, King Jehoiakim just carried on. I mean, he built his great palaces. Uh, the people uh, followed him. He showed no mercy, he showed no commitment to the living God. The priests and the prophets and the military, they all took their cue from this king. 
And so he concludes in verse 4, the wicked hem in the righteous. So I don't know if you can capture what was going on. Everything was going apart at the seams. It was what represented, it represented for Habakkuk this overwhelming burden. Why was God allowing this to happen? Why was God insisting that he should look, he should see it? It was a burden of disappointment, a burden of disillusionment, maybe a burden of despair. These were God's own people. Only God could rescue them. And that, of course, is the second feature of these verses. I've called it calling for help. I guess you noticed that as uh, Keith read the words to us in verses 2 to 4. There's a certain intensity about it, isn't there, when you see it? The words are implying he's, he's almost screaming, Help, Lord! Why is your law being trampled on? Why are your people drifting away? And the real crisis for Habakkuk as he talks to the Lord in this way is there in verse 2. He's crying again and again and again, How long, Lord, must I call for help? but you do not listen. And of course, these questions are often on our lips, aren't they? Why? How long? When you've been asking God to do something for a long time, it's hard to avoid the conclusion that, that God isn't interested. Why make me see such trouble, Habakkuk says? Why is justice flouted? Why do I even bother to pray? Well, I wonder if as God's people here in Northern Ireland or around the world, whether we actually have a similar burden as we look at our own communities, our own society, the way that truth and morality are ignored in our context. And I wonder if we have the same honesty of Habakkuk as he appeals to God to do something. And it was precisely because of how Habakkuk understood God that he had these questions, he had this complaint to God. If this is true about God, the God who reigns, the God who is merciful, the God who is in charge, why the delay? Well, that's Habakkuk's problem. And then we come in the second section to God's response. It's his purpose, verses 5 to 11. And the section begins, if you notice verse 5, with the word, look. Look at the nations. Um, he's, the Lord is picking up what Habakkuk had already said in verse 3. Why do you make me look? But now the Lord is saying, well, take a wider look. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. And you understand from these verses that God is saying, I am at work. I am already at work. Verse 5, I'm going to do something in your days. I am raising up the Babylonians. And this is a signal that, in fact, God had heard Habakkuk's cry. Now, literally there in verse 5, it could read, I am working a work in your day. I am doing something. So God was not, God is not standing idly by watching on a street corner whistling as if he is indifferent to what's happening in Afghanistan or in Northern Ireland or wherever we may be. He is at work, he is saying. If only Habakkuk had eyes to see it. I am raising up the Babylonians, he says in verse 6. 
And when we see what uh, now follows in these next verses, we realize that the Lord is behind a series of devastating events which would change the course of history in Habakkuk's day. He wasn't absent from Habakkuk's world. He hadn't abandoned his plans. He was already at work providing a solution to the problem that so concerned Habakkuk, which we've just looked at. The Babylonian war machine was already on the move. And I, I guess when you read it again, you're almost shocked, aren't you, by the, the phrases that describe this Babylonian war machine from verse 6 onwards, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. They're a feared and dreaded people. We go down to verse 10. They deride kings, they scoff at rulers, they laugh at all fortified cities. Verse 11, guilty people whose own strength is their God. Um, every time I read that, I think that really would not be out of place in our own world, would it? We're yet to see what terrors the Taliban may bring. But we have evidence in so many other parts of the world of the way in which people operate this kind of scorched earth policy. How in some nations there is a ruthless ethnic cleansing that sometimes impacts believers. This Babylonian war machine is guilty of international terrorism, as Habakkuk witnesses what the Lord says. Here is a military juggernaut that is crushing everything in its path when you read the language of these verses. So the reply to Habakkuk's problem, Habakkuk's complaint that it seems to him that God is indifferent or at least inactive, this is God's answer. Let me show you that I am work, I'm at work, and I am working in ways that you would hardly believe, verse 6 implies. Well, I don't know how, how you are, I guess in my praying, uh, I often have expectations of how God should answer my prayer. I guess we all do, really, when we're seeking his help. We have an idea, well, Lord, this is what you're going to have to do. So it's important to notice what God says to Habakkuk. Look carefully. Take another look. Take a wider look. In other words, you need a slightly different perspective, Habakkuk. Um, I loved ages ago seeing a cartoon. It was uh, a Charlie Brown cartoon. And uh, he was sitting reading a book and it was really close up to his eyes like this. And uh, as he was reading it, uh, Lucy, his friend Lucy, came into the room and said to him, Charlie Brown, what on earth are you doing? And he said, well, I'm trying to read between the lines. <laughs> and uh, that's a phrase I would like us to bear in mind this morning and indeed as we go through this week. The importance of reading between the lines. Uh, this is something which we Christian believers must do. We must learn to see another story. I mean, you can watch Sky TV, you can open your newspaper, you can pick it up on the radio. There's a story of what's happening in our world. But we Christians have to learn also to perceive another story, to read between the lines, to try to determine beneath that surface story the reality of God at work. And actually, that's what the Bangor Worldwide program is all about. We're beginning to discern the story that God is fulfilling all around the world. Um, there are so many examples of this, but 
I often quote the story in uh, Philippians 1. Do you remember Paul was stuck in prison, rather like the people we've been praying for over the weekend, many believers, and this morning in our prayer meeting, praying for believers in prison. And Paul said in Philippians 1, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Well, how is that? He's locked away in prison. I mean, he's an entrepreneur, he's an evangelist, he wants to get out there and do things, and he says, yeah, here I am in prison, and God is using this. God is at work so that the gospel is advancing. And he says in Philippians 1, you know, for one reason, I've got guards who are chained to me, probably groups of four to six guards changing every four hours, so I've got a captive audience. And for another reason, he says, uh, now that I'm in chains, other Christians, God's people, are getting on with the job because the great apostle Paul is stuck in prison. So the gospel is advancing. So you see what he's doing? He's reading between the lines. He's seeing there is another story. God is at work despite the restrictions of my being in prison. And that's what we need, eyes to see another story. Even in challenging circumstances, such as we've been praying about over this weekend, God is still at work. I always remember uh, when NATO was, was bombing uh, former Yugoslavia, we had a, a lovely Christian friend in Belgrade, he's still there, and uh, the bomb, NATO bombs were falling on Belgrade at the time. He lived in a, a tall, high-rise flat, the tallest building in, uh, in Belgrade, and he and his mother lived in the top story, and on top of the flat were communications antennae, so it was quite a vulnerable place to be in the midst of bombing. Yet he would send out these emails, which we received, with all kinds of stories of how he had great conversations with people down in the basement of the apartments, how he would be sharing the good news of the gospel with taxi drivers as they sped across the city. He had eyes to see another story. He was reading between the lines. So, Maybe some of us are facing opposition in our workplace or in our family. Uh, we're praying, or some of us may be involved in mission contexts which are extremely challenging. As we do that, we should not lose sight of the fact that God is at work. And secondly, related to this, God is in control. We've already quoted verse 6, I am raising up the Babylonians. God is not only at work, but he will do so according to his plans and purposes. Um, this actually would be part of Habakkuk's perplexity, which we'll finish on in just a minute. God was implying it's going to get a whole lot worse before it gets better. And what's so significant here, and actually so troubling for Habakkuk, was that although the Babylonian army was in the driving seat, God was the commander pushing them forward. The Babylonians were actually an instrument of God's purpose. That's what's being declared in these verses. And it underlines a very profound truth, not always easy for us to grasp. God is the God of history. He's in control of the movement, even of pagan nations. Now, that's the key lesson here. Martin Lloyd-Jones years ago wrote a little a book about Habakkuk, and this is what he says in it. God started the historical process. He is controlling it, and he is going to end it. And I wonder if that's your view, your world view uh, of the Lord who reigns. Uh, sometimes it looks quite the opposite, as I've said already this morning. But the truth is, God is at work, and God is in control. That's the theme of our convention. The Lord reigns. 
Um, here is something Don Carson wrote on the issue of the Lord who is sovereign. I read his book before coming here, and it's a really interesting comment. I'll put it up. If he truly reigns over all, if God truly reigns over all, even those who disbelieve in him, who hate him, and who think that there are other gods, are in God's kingdom. It's quite a brave thing to say. But he's right, because all of these things that are taking place are underneath the sovereign control of the Lord. And the New Testament bears witness to this reality as well, doesn't it? We often remember how the early Christians prayed in Acts 4. Do you remember uh, Peter and John had been arrested, told not to preach in the name of Jesus? And uh, the early believers prayed in the midst of the uh, attack from religious leaders, from Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles. And in the prayer, they said, they did what your power and will decided beforehand should happen. They came to realize that these events, including Jesus' crucifixion, were not running out of control. This is another story. This is God's power, God's will, God's decision. I wonder if you sometimes meet Christians who seem to live their lives as if they're in a kind of constant Star Wars adventure. And there are two equal and opposite powers in their lives. There's good over here and there's evil over here. And they live their lives almost as if their lives are swinging between those two poles. So something happens, an event happens, and they assign that to God. Something else happens and they assign that to, de to the devil. And it, it's almost as if, as I say, they're swinging between these two things. Well, that is not the picture that we're given of what is happening in our world. That's not the biblical perspective. What Habakkuk 1, what Acts 4, what so many passages affirm is that God is always in control. God is sovereign. The Lord reigns. Satan himself is under God's authority, as we know from the remarkable story of Job. Well, Habakkuk 1 then underlines this reality. God is saying, I am the one behind human history. The Babylonians might think they're in control. The Brits, the Americans might think they're in control. The Taliban, ISIS, Al-Qaeda may think they're in control. But the rise and fall of nations is in God's hands. The Lord God omnipotent reigns. Um, we often remind ourselves of how we see that also in the story of mission, which we're thinking about this weekend. And I was uh, remembering... Um, the story in China. Do you remember with the communist takeover uh, in China, 1949-1950? And, and thousands of missionaries were evacuated from China. And many people thought that would be close to the end for the Chinese church. But has that been the case? It certainly hasn't. It resulted in extraordinary growth. Um, there will be more believers in churches in China uh, next Sunday than in the whole of Western Europe. There's been an explosive growth. It's hard to know how many believers there are in mainland China. And probably that would have never happened. Well, we don't know, but could that be precisely because of the challenge that they faced when all the missionaries were evacuated? And I say again, some of us may be walking this path. We may be asking the same questions. Why is this happening in my life? And we can be encouraged. It might be hard to see right now, but we can be sure of these two things. God is at work, and God is in control.
Well, now we come to the final thing, and that is Habakkuk's perplexity, the final section, verses 12 to 17, because Habakkuk could hardly believe his ears when the Lord replied in the way he did. Yes, God is fulfilling his word, but that wasn't really the issue for Habakkuk. We'll see as we go into chapter two that he was happy with the, well, not happy, but he realized that judgment and justice were necessary. But he had another problem. He had this deep perplexity, which we read in these verses, because instead of God's purposes being advanced, it seemed to Habakkuk to be going in exactly the opposite direction. That the cure seemed worse than the illness as he heard what the Lord was going to do. In fact, this is the point of tension that I mentioned right at the beginning. He believed God, he believed God's rule, he believed in God's righteousness and justice, yet look how God was going to act. And you can see the conflict, this point of tension, if you just compare verse 12 and verse 13. There we'll find this point of tension. So first of all, I put it uh, under the phrase confidence in verses 12 and 13, where he affirms what he knows to be true. Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die, or he, uh, we will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. So these are the certainties, the confident expressions of his faith. Um, it's really important to notice, I think, uh, in the Psalms, in the prophets, through scripture, that many people, in the midst of their perplexity, affirm what they know to be true. So when you're uncertain about what's going on in your life or your church or your community or the world, let's affirm the things that we do know to be true. And uh, he does this. Let me just put up the bullet points. He talks about God's commitment in verse 12. Oh Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, we will not die. And um, Habakkuk here uses the word Yahweh. The covenant God, he's saying, Lord, we belong to you. My God, my Holy One, we're safe because we belong to you. So he's affirming this fundamental certainty of trusting the covenant-keeping God, the God who won't let go of him or them. We will not die. You're not going to let go of your people. That's exactly our confidence as well, isn't it? God will not let go of us. Whatever happens... Whatever we might confront, whatever illness, whatever challenge, the same for the believers around the world for whom we've been praying, God is not going to give up on his people. He is faithful. And then secondly, he talks about God's eternity in verse 12. So you know, in this turbulent world, we can be absolutely certain of this reality. God is eternal. Verse 12, O Lord, are you not from everlasting? He's the God who's engaged in history, as we've just been saying. He's above all of its ebb and flow. His throne is above all. We'll see that as we come to chapter 2 on Wednesday. He reigns. He is the everlasting God. He's the almighty. Verse 12, he is the rock. He's the one stable element in this world. And thirdly, Habakkuk refers to God's purpose. You'll see it in verse 12. O oh Lord, you have appointed them, the Babylonians, to execute judgment. O oh Rock, you have ordained them to, pun to punish. So he's accepting what God is doing. 
He realizes that this coming Babylonian invasion with all of its horror is something which God has ordained. So international events are not random. They don't occur by chance. They are part of God's sovereign purpose. And Habakkuk realizes God is at work, God is in control. So there are three great expressions of his confidence. But then there's a point of tension because he looks out and he sees something different. I've called it contradiction in these verses that follow from 13 onwards. Now, if originally he thought God was indifferent or at least God was inactive, in this final section, he now believes that God is being inconsistent. If you look at verse 13, your eyes are too pure to look upon evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? I mean, look at the instruments whom God is using. Capturing nations, inflicting violence, taking prisoners of war, sweeping across the land like these ferocious predatory animals. You see it in verses 8 and 9 as well as in the verses which follow. Now, this is the God who is the God of awesome purity, Habakkuk is thinking. So why does he allow the ruthless Babylonians to do their worst? Now, Habakkuk was just slightly suspicious, perhaps, that if he uses them, he must be like them. If you look at verses 14 to 17, we haven't time to comment on them, but it's a description of the Babylonian violence which would now occur. And uh, there's some graphic poetic descriptions is saying that uh, like a fisherman uh, he's sitting there the Babylonian army sitting there alongside the stream which God has uh, obligingly stocked with human fish and he is sitting there hooking them out in fact I read a while ago that the Babylonians literally did this they took their prisoners and they put hooks through their jaw and they carried the prisoners in chains along hooked in that way. So the, the image of fishing is not at all inappropriate. Habakkuk is appalled by this kind of brutality. And perhaps that's how it seems to us. And of course we're perplexed. We have to, we have to admit this by what is happening in our world. We're perplexed by the tragedies that we witness. It might be out there in other parts of the world. It might be indeed in our own lives. They seem to contradict our understanding of God's character. I say again, it's not that Habakkuk was against the idea of God judging. He knew that judgment was necessary, but his concern was how can all of this fulfill God's purpose of establishing righteousness? And how long is this going to last? You see the final verse, verse 17? Is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? It's going on forever. When will God finally restore order? Well, that leads us into chapter 2 and verse 1. I will stand at my watch. I will station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. He wants God to speak. And if you're able to come tomorrow morning, I, I, I think you'll be encouraged as I am by what those opening verses of chapter 2 have to say. But as we finish, could I just put up three simple conclusions that have helped me as I've looked at this chapter, and I hope they will help you too. Um, as we trust God in turbulent times, 
I think the first thing we have to do, which we've been doing this morning and indeed over the weekend in our prayer meeting too, and that is to confront reality. Um, I'm very aware that the issues in this book are not always easy for us to face up to, and I hope you've caught something of that spirit as we've looked at this first chapter. As I said, we can resolve the tensions that we have to live with by keeping our faith separate from all of these troubled issues in our world. But there's no need to protect our faith in that kind of way. Uh, Jim Packer uses the phrase adult godliness when he talks about confronting many of the challenges in our world. Adult godliness means facing up to this tension and discovering that there is solid rock under our feet. As we've seen, there is this confidence in the sovereign Lord, in Yahweh, the God to whom we belong, the God who is at work and the God who is in control. But it's important that we also recognize the reality of our world, the reality in our own lives, and the reality of God himself. Here's what Jim Packer said. Unreality towards God is the wasting disease of much modern Christianity. We need God to make us realists, both about ourselves and God. And then the second thing I think we see in chapter 1, and that's the importance of praying honestly. Uh, Habakkuk, I think, shows us that we, we can be open in our dialogue with the Lord. We can speak openly and honestly. After all, he knows our hearts, he knows our minds, he knows what we're going through. And it's a false spirituality to imagine that we, we have to hide certain things from God. We can't say certain things to him. And usually, if we try and exhibit a brave and a cheerful face to God when we're going through these difficulties, it almost always adds to our problem. It accentuates the condition that we're experiencing. So I quite like a little phrase uh, which John Goldingay uh, said. He was writing about Jeremiah, actually. And he said he was, Jeremiah was working at the same time as Habakkuk. And uh, John Goldingay put it like this. We need not attempt to bottle it up because God invites us to pour it out. That's a very simple expression, but that is true. We can come to God with our bewilderment, with our questions, with our uncertainties. God invites us to do that. Um, Margaret and I have been receiving e emails for some weeks now, months, uh, from a dear friend of ours whose wife has just died uh, prematurely from a very aggressive cancer. Um, we had an email uh, from him even this morning. And um, what is so moving about his emails is that he does affirm his certainties, as his wife did too, um, but he was also open about the emotional demands and the bewilderment and the confusion alongside the certainty and the confidence. He said he does that in prayer. He does that with his prayer partners too. And I think that's another example of how we should live in turbulent times. Let's be honest about our struggles. We can pray honestly together about those things which concern us. Let's bring them to the Lord. And finally, perhaps most importantly, as I've said, affirming certainty. My God, my Holy One, my Rock. Again, I give another little pithy phrase that I've pinched from someone else. It's Martin Lloyd-Jones. The essence of wisdom is to talk to yourself <clears throat> rather than to listen to yourself. He says that in his book, Spiritual Depression. And I, I love the way he says it. In other words, um, we could easily, in a situation of difficulty, listen to all our emotions, all of our questions, all of our uncertainties. And what we need to do is to talk to ourselves, like the psalmists used to, even when they were under pressure. 
In other words, to repeat to yourself the certainties of God's word, the rock-solid affirmations of faith, the certainties of Jesus, Jesus and his death and resurrection and his rule and his return, the certainties of God's unchanging love, the certainties of his rule. Habakkuk uh, here is a man of honest faith. He's a man of committed prayer. He's a true believer, as we're going to see tomorrow morning. My God my rock and that of course dear brothers and sisters is exactly what we must assert as well even in the blackest moments and we'll discover that god is our refuge and strength he's the rock on which we can stand we begin to find that our feet like habakkuk's are there on that secure rock well thank you very much for your patience in working through those demanding questions this morning uh, we do hope you'll be able to come tomorrow as we uh, come to chapter 2. Let's pray together. Our Father, we know that there are many things that might threaten us in this uncertain world. But we are thankful for the assurance that nothing shall separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we pray for our fellow believers around the world, for our missionary colleagues, for indigenous peoples, for nationals, under pressure in so many countries. And we pray that you will draw alongside them, draw alongside us. You will strengthen our faith, our trust in the sovereign Lord who is at work and who is in control. You will place our feet firmly on the rock. You will remind us that we are roped to the safest guide in the universe. And as we learn these truths and these spiritual disciplines we've been looking at, we pray that you will help us and equip us to be able to help others as well, whether in our family or in our church, people who are struggling in one area or another, amongst our friends, Christian and non-Christian. Help us to encourage one another to trust God in these turbulent times. In Jesus' name, amen. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.